Well, if you're able, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, looking at verse 19 this morning. I am very thankful to continue our study as we read the conclusion of this epistle, this short epistle, which has been, I believe, so profitable for us. First John chapter 5, looking in verse 19. Last week we began to discuss these things that we know that the Apostle John was uh, ending his letter with. We said it was a treasure house of truth. We unpacked one of the treasures last week, and we're going to unpack the second one this day. So the title of this sermon is What We Know, Part 2. What We Know. This is the thesis of today's message. Those who belong to God confess the true Christ. And they only do so because they have been brought to the light, which is our Lord Jesus Christ and God himself. On the other hand, those who reject the true Christ have been left in the darkness and are under the influence of an unimaginable evil. That's the thesis of today's message. Those who belong to God and who confess the true Christ only do so because they have been brought to the light. And those who reject the true Christ have been left in darkness and are under the influence of an unimaginable evil. We're looking at verse 19 of chapter 5 of the first epistle of John, but I, for context, want to start in verse 13 and reading. So if you're in 1 John 5, look at verse 13 and read with me. This is John's conclusion to his letter. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will forgive him, will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. The evil one does not touch him. In our verse for this morning, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's ask the Lord to help us one more time. Father, we ask that you would help us now for we need it. Lord, even in this one verse, there is a treasure house of truth. Let us even begin to unpack what you have for us in this verse, what the Apostle John, through the Holy Spirit, was teaching those 
whom he loved and whom he sought to protect. Protect us now and guide us as we consider the same. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, what is the most famous work written in the English language, originally written in the English language, what would you say? If I asked you, what is the most admired and appreciated and hailed text in the English language, what would you say? Well, I think many would be quick to say, well, maybe Shakespeare. But in my experience and in my uh, training in literature, there is a work that often overshadows Shakespeare, and it is written by a Christian. He was a Puritan, and his name was John Milton. And John Milton wrote a work called Paradise Lost. First published in the year 1667, it's a magnum opus, and it is a treasure in and of itself. At the beginning of the 12 books that make up Paradise Lost, John Milton was insisted upon by the publisher to give an introduction to each of the books in this larger book of Paradise Lost. And this is the introduction to book one, where John Milton writes this. This first book proposes first, in brief, the whole subject, man's disobedience, and the loss thereupon of paradise, wherein he was placed. Then touches the prime cause of his fall, the serpent, or rather Satan in the serpent, who revolting from God and drawing to his side many legions of angels, was by the command of God driven out of heaven with all his crew into the great deep, which action passed over, the poem hastes into the midst of things, presenting Satan with his angels now fallen into hell, described here, not in the center, for heaven and earth may be supposed as yet not made, certainly not yet accursed, but in a place of utter darkness, fitly called chaos. Here Satan with his angels, lying on the burning lake, thunderstruck and astonished after a certain space, recovers, as from confusion. He calls upon him who next in order and dignity laid by him. They confer on their miserable fall, and Satan awakens all his legions, who lay till then in the same manner confounded. They rise, their numbers a ray of battle. Their chief leaders are named according to the idols known afterward in Canaan and the countries adjoining. To these, Satan directs his speech, comforts them with hope, yet of regaining heaven, but tells them, lastly, of a new world and a new kind of creature to be created, according to an ancient prophecy or a report in heaven. For that, angels were long before this visible creation was the opinion of many ancient fathers. To find out the truth of this prophecy and what to determine thereon, he refers to a full council, what his associates thence attempt. Pandemonium, the palace of Satan rises, suddenly built out of the deep, 
the infernal peers there sit in council. That is the introduction of Milton to book one of Paradise Lost, where it begins in the midst of things. It begins with Satan and his legions taking counsel together on what they might do. Now listen to what Satan says in verse 242 of book one. Is this the region? This the soil, the clime? said the lost archangel. This the seat that we must change for heaven? This mournful gloom for that celestial light? Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. Farthest from him is best. Farthest from him is best. Whom reason hath equaled, Force hath made supreme. These are the lies of Satan. God is only supreme because he's taken it by force. Farewell, happy fields, says Satan, where joy forever dwells. And then a few verses later, he says this, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. John Milton's work is a deeply theological work, and I think you can see the correspondence it has to the Word of God. Only someone who is wicked to the core would say, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And this is the springboard into today's sermon. This is the truth. The absurdity of unbelief marks the children of darkness. If you are a child of darkness, you are marked by absurdity. But the children of light are marked by the mind of Christ. The complete opposite of absurdity. Christianity is logical. Christianity is true. Unbelief is illogical. Unbelief is absurd. As absurd and as illogical as the saying, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So as a springboard into our sermon today, we're going to have two headings with this in mind. Heading number one, brought to the light. Brought to the light. Those who now confess the true Christ belong to God. And part two, left in darkness. Those who now reject the true Christ are left in darkness. Those are our two headings. Let us consider it together. Look back with me at verse 19. We know that we are of God. Those who now confess the true Christ belong to God. Some explanatory notes as we begin. The Apostle John is continuing here, even in his conclusion, to encourage his spiritual children again by these words. We know, we know that we are of God. He's been laboring throughout this epistle to build up the faith to build up the assurance and confidence of those whom he's writing to, and indeed, through the Holy Spirit, to us this morning. 
That was all the way back from verse 13 when we had that purpose statement, remember? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's continuing, even as he's concluding this letter, to drill this home. This is his motivation. But listen to the words, we know that we are of God. You know, what would an unbeliever that you're speaking to, sharing the gospel with, even maybe someone recently during the celebrations and the feasts that we have been partaking of and the company that we've had, certainly mixed with believers and unbelievers alike, what would the response be if you're talking about Christ and they're saying, well, that's not why I celebrate Christmas, and I don't believe in Jesus, and that's your truth, and I have my truth, and you say to them, well, I know that I'm of God. What would the response of the person be? That is the most conceited thing that I've ever heard anybody say. You, you know that you're of God? Well, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what John is telling us here. And it's not the words that are meant to be conceited. John isn't saying this puffed up with pride, saying to his spiritual children, well, we know that we're of God with a smug grin on his face. You know, we're on the right side. Well, okay, that may be true, but that's not the heart behind the message. These words are not meant to be conceited, but rather declarative. And this is the confidence that we should have. If we were to say to somebody, well, I know that I'm of God. Oh, really? This should be the answer we give and the reason we give it. Not because we're better. Not because we're wiser. Not because we were born into a Christian family. Not because we attend the congregation on the Lord's Day with our families. And speaking to you children who gather with your mothers and fathers who are members here, but rather because it is rooted in our confession of Christ, not our works, lest any man should boast. That's why we can say with confidence, we belong to God because of what we confess, because what God has told us to be true. We know that we are of God because we confess the true Christ. If we confess the Christ that John has written about in his epistle and what the mind of Christ has disclosed in his word. That's why we know that we are of God, because we believe the testimony that has been given to us of Jesus Christ. Far be it from our own works. It is the works of God that we believe in. We read about it in the psalm this morning. We recalled his mighty works, even from Egypt. He did a mightier work by bringing you out of sin. Is it a mightier work to bring you out of sin or to bring ten plagues upon Egypt by signs and wonders? The unbeliever would say, I'm more impressed with the signs and wonders. We know better. And we know that even signs and wonders wouldn't impress them if they actually saw them. Because it takes a new heart to believe the message of Christ, not signs and wonders. Many saw signs and wonders and remained in unbelief.
But we know that we are of God, not conceited, but based in a faithful confession of our Lord Jesus Christ. John has been laboring to show us the true Christ through this epistle. He's been laboring to show us that he was truly man and he was truly God. We talked about the wondrous truth of Christ being begotten from eternity in last week's message. We talked about Christ being consubstantial with the Father in previous messages. That he is God incarnate. Not a lesser God. Not a qualified God. Not a different God than the Old Testament God. But God Almighty. But when John says, we know, there's also a subtle attack here against those whom he is protecting his flock against. Remember, those who are creeping into the church and, and teaching a counterfeit Christ and a counterfeit gospel and a counterfeit ethic would later become known as Gnostics. And those Gnostics, the word Gnostic, Gnosis, remember, means knowledge. That was it. It was a secret society, a secret cult, a secret clique. Come join us and we'll give you secret knowledge about Jesus. Knowledge that you don't get from the word of God. So when John says, we know, gnosis, it's, it's a subtle insult to those Gnostic teachers who were saying that they knew. They knew the truth. And you know what John is doing, brothers and sisters? He, and this has application to us today, lest you think that someone like me is above you because I'm in a pulpit, or a teacher on the internet, or a teacher who has books on Amazon is above you and greater than you and has knowledge that you can never attain to lest you have all these degrees behind your name or have a fan base and a thousand thousands of likes on Facebook. No, John is including you, brothers and sisters, in this. When he says, we know, we talked about this last week, the we now includes everybody who's listening. It now includes all those whom he is writing to. We know that we are of God. And that language of being of God harkens back to what we talked about last week, being born of him, being begotten of him. So not only is John encouraging us through our confession of the true Christ, not only is he giving a subtle attack against those Gnostics who had crept into the church, claiming that they had a secret knowledge, and not only is he talking about us being born of God, which is why we know that we are of him. John is seeking to encourage us at the end of his letter that we have these things now. This is not something we will have in the future. It's something you have right now as you sit in your, in your seats. It's something that you had before you came here this morning. It's something you had the moment you first believed. We've said before, John is just repeating things that he's already said previously in his letter. Turn back, if you're able, to chapter 3. Let me show you a parallel where he says, again, the same thing, but in different words. 
John is in the habit of doing this. John is in the habit in his epistles and even in the book of Revelation of repeating the same ideas and giving you more details each time he repeats it. It's like a spiral where he starts out on the outer rim and then the spiral starts getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until you get to the center. It's a very instructive way to read the book of Revelation, by the way. And it's a very instructive way to read this epistle. Because he's repeating things. And that spiral is getting tighter. So this is one of the outer rims of that spiral where he was saying the same thing. And then we'll come back to where we are now and see how that same message is now tighter. 1 John 3, chapter 1 through 3. This is what John said. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, but it did know him. It did not know him, rather, sorry. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John begins in chapter 3 talking about our adoption. And this love that God has bestowed upon us and that we are children of God now. That's the outer rim of the spiral. So now go back to verse 19 in chapter 5, and he says simply, we know that we are of God. It's the same message. It's just now concentrated. So he's repeating what he has already said. And this is why, again... We confess the true Christ and belong to God. Again, not because you're wiser and you figured this out. Not because you put your time in prayer and you put your time in Bible study. And these are very good things. And God answers prayers and he uses means. But you can read the Bible every day of your life. And you can pray every day of your life incessantly. In vain. According to the flesh. There isn't, there isn't a counter in heaven that is ticking every time you say a prayer. Or every time you read your Bible. Something happened before you prayed that first prayer. Before you... Before you believed... We're going to say it again. We've been here before. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We cannot read this section enough. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to see what happened. This is why we confess the true Christ. Because we have been brought to the true Christ. And God didn't decide to bring you to the true Christ after he saw how admirable you were. God has chosen to bring you to his son long before then. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We know this well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world, 
that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. John is saying something, something very similar in 1 John 5, 19. In fact, in verse 20, the verse we're going to read next, he's going to talk about the knowledge that we've been given. Corresponding to what Paul says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. In space and time, God made known to you the truth of Jesus, and you believed it. Not because it made sense, it does, but because he gave you the ability to receive it. And he did that based upon his election of you before the foundation of the world. And when he gave you, in time and space, the ability to receive the truth of Jesus Christ, he not only justified you in his courtroom, that very thing which we said we cannot do on our own, beginning of the service today, but he adopted you. He adopted you as his child so that all that belongs to him now belongs to you. And he calls you child and you call him father. As John was reading in the New Testament today out of the book of Acts, there is a sense in which everybody is a child of God because we're made in his image. But there is a greater filial love of the Father to those whom he has adopted. And those are us who confess the true Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He brought you to the light Christ in space, in time. I don't know how old you were when God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear, but it's all based upon his election of you before the foundation of the world. Those who confess the true Christ belong to God because they were elected by God before the world was. And because of that, you recline in the house of God. You eat at the table of God. And Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and will recline at table with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we are all waiting for when our Lord returns, where we get to sup with him eat with him and see him as he is. And as John would say, we don't do not know what we will be like when that happens, but we know this, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When we see our Lord Jesus Christ, you will be changed and you will have a glorious existence. How we long for that day, brothers and sisters. And because of that, 
because that is what awaits us. We have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit now. We have been changed in part now. We have a new nature that wrestles with our old nature now. We are in a war now. But here's the difference as compared to those who do not have Christ now. We have the mind of Christ. And because we have the mind of Christ, we seek the things of Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Have you had conversations recently where you're sharing the gospel and someone says that's foolishness? They might not even say in quite those words, but what they're saying is, that's your truth, I have my truth. And he cannot understand them, the Apostle Paul says. He can't believe them. Why? Because he was like you before you were given eyes to see and ears to hear. Don't you remember? I remember. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. That's why he can't understand the truth. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody in this room? Most people are thinking, I don't know how to answer that question. Maybe the knee-jerk reaction is no. We don't know the mind of the Lord. No, we do. <laughs> but we have the mind of Christ. You see, this is the gift of the new birth. This is the gift of being adopted by our Father. This is the gift of being brought to the light, the true light, Jesus Christ, who was born into the world and who is now reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And now we have to reckon with those who have not been brought to the light. We said that we recline at the table of the Lord. We feast with our Lord now as children. But there are those who reject the true Christ. Those even in this room who yet to know him might not put the rejection of Christ in the boldest words, but they reject him nonetheless. And they remain in darkness. And this is the warning that John is giving, not just to them, but even to those of us who believe, so that we know what this world is that we live in until the coming of our Lord. 19b. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When John speaks of the world here, I believe that he means people because of the parallel passage in John, 1 John chapter 3, where he's speaking of being born of God or being a child of God or being a child of the evil one. But I think there is a way to understand that it's not just the people of the world. It's also the power of the world. Notice it says the power of the evil one. So it's not just because of wicked humans. It's not just because of wicked demons and Satan, but because of the power of these wicked ones. 
which they are now wielding upon the world, even upon the sons of disobedience, those whom we belong to before we were saved. And the Apostle John is now contrasting what he said about believers now. He proclaimed that those who confess the true Christ have their origin from God. And this is a distinction to the world. Notice that the Apostle doesn't say here, and the whole world is of the devil. You might expect him to say that. We know that we are of God and the whole world is of the evil one. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, rather, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I believe William Hendrickson makes a good observation when he says, the world does not belong to Satan because Satan cannot lay claim to creating it. Yes, this world does not belong to Satan. God made the world. God made everything in it. And God is the author of our salvation. He claims us now in Christ as his workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 But Satan cannot lay claim to creating the world. Satan cannot lay claim to creating anything. So how is it that the world lies in the power of the evil one? Through deception. It was by deception that Satan took control of the world. And in fact, even this was part of the counsel of God. This again is a subtle attack on those enemies of the church who claimed that the God who created the world was an evil God. That was their schema. There was a God who created the Old Testament. He was an evil God. And the God of the New Testament is a good God. Sadly enough, that's even taught today in some circles. Far be it. The same God who's in the New Testament is the same God who's in the Old Testament. Genesis 3 reveals how it was that Satan plunged the world into sin. And again, what we would expect, if this is the tighter part of the spiral from John's epistle, is that if we go back to chapter 3 and pick up, pick up reading where we left off, it should correspond to this. Let's go back to chapter 3 if you're able. Where we left off, we read up to verse 3 last time. What we would expect now is what John says in verse 4 and following will correspond to the second part of 19b. Listen to what John says. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his, sin, his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
You see, John is saying now in a condensed form in the latter part of 19, what it just took six verses to say in chapter 3. This hermeneutical spiral has gotten tighter as we get to the end of John's epistle. He's now summing up all these things in his conclusion. But as John says, we know that we are of God, and we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does Satan know? Satan knows that Jesus came to drive him out. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And Satan knows that Jesus has been and is rescuing his people from darkness. Galatians 1, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Again, if you've been brought to the light, if you've been rescued from this present evil age, if you confess the true Christ, it's because God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit had planned it from eternity. But that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't have power here. Just by saying the world does not belong to Satan doesn't mean that he doesn't have sway over the world. And that's what John is saying. This unspeakable darkness and power that is afflicting us as believers and tempting those who are outside of Christ is an unspeakable power. Satan tempted our words with these uh, tempted our Lord with these words in the desert. I will give you authority over all these kingdoms and all their glory. That's what Satan said to Jesus. As we've said before, that was not an empty promise. Satan could have given Jesus authority over all the kingdoms of the world because of what Satan says next. For it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. Now truly, the same authority and power and rule that Christ has earned for us because of his redemptive work is not the same kind of authority that Satan could have given to Christ. But Satan holds sway over this world. John reminds us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Flee to Christ. Christ is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If you do not flee to Christ, if you do not put your trust and hope in him, there is no hope for you. Not only in eternity, but even in this life. We said in our sermon on Solus Christus that there are two paths that one can take in this life. One path that leads to believing in the Son, trusting in the Son, resting in the Son, but leads to ridicule and rejection by the world. And the other path is rejecting the Son and being celebrated by the world. 
Which path looks better to you? May it not be the path that leads to temporary blessing from the hands of wicked forces, but may it rather be the road less traveled, the narrow road, the road that leads to a door upon which you knock and it will be opened. A door that leads to Jesus Christ with a great banquet on the other side in which after all these trials we get to sup with him and live forever on a new earth which does not lie in the power of the evil one but exclusively is ruled by a sovereign, loving, good God who has given his son for us so that we can dwell there forever with him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Those who belong to God confess the true Christ and they only do so because they have been brought to the light. On the other hand, those who reject the true Christ have been left in the darkness and are under the influence of an unimaginable evil. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then that light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Praise be to God that he has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his active and passive obedience, for the life that he lived unto righteousness and the death that he presented himself under so that we could have our sins forgiven. The holes in his hands bear the testimony that we have been purchased once and for all by his blood. His resurrection from the tomb testifies that we will one day be like him in a glorified body, for he is the first fruits of the resurrection, and the harvest is what is to follow. Oh, Father, our heart breaks for those who are outside of your house. Those whom we love, even those whom we barely know, for we know the truth of the matter, that the great, the darkness is great in those who reject the sun. But the light shines forth in the face of all those who confess him for your glory and for their good. Father, we ask now that you would bless the means of grace in the supper that we may see him with our eyes, taste him with our mouths, appealing to all of our senses. May the gospel be known to us, that we could be refreshed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.